discounts to a slew of vendors, really great discounts uh, that you can't just go get anywhere. These are not like AAA discounts, folks. Where you go into the hotel, they give you 5% off for being a AAA member, but they'll give you 5% off for anything. These are discounts you don't just find anywhere on the stuff that you need as a prepper. And uh, remember, it's $50 a year or $5 a month to join the members brigade and support the show at 20 cents an episode. Uh, but maybe I should mention this more. I'm now accepting American Open Currency Standard Silver at a value of 50 uh, you have to mail that to me, obviously. There's a shipping charge, but it's still a good deal, right? Because an ACOS uh, fi- uh, 50 round costs about 25 bucks. So if you want to know how you can get MSB for 25 bucks, buy some ACOS silver, mail one of them to me, fill the form out that people use when they pay by check or money order, and I'll set you up for a year, and you can pay as many times as you want with that. I've made a pledge to not just run my mouth about things like silver and barter networks, but actually support one. Uh, American Open Currency Standard is the best one I've seen, so I'm supporting them by being a vendor that accepts their currency. Um, I want to talk real quick before we get to the main topic, though, a little bit about this. I've had a lot of people ask me, why not just save silver? Why spend it now? You save it for the future. There's some wisdom there, and trust me, folks, I have quite a bit of silver put aside. I have some gold put aside for the long term. But let me ask you a question. If I said to you, you can go out today and buy a one-ounce silver round uh, ACOS currency standard for about $24, $25, whatever it is. And if you gave it to me, I'll give you $50 for it. And tomorrow you'll be able to go buy another one for $25 and keep the difference. Would you save the silver for later? Or would you go, Jack's a fool, let me get his 25 bucks and profit off of them? That's how bar- barter inside the currency exchanges works. Because there's an exchange rate advantage. So when I go up next week to Frisco, Texas to buy a bunch of grass-fed beef if Rob gets it in again up there, and I go up there and I spend, let's say, $50 in trade silver value on ground meat and, and other things, and I was going to spend $50 in the store, well, I just spent $25 United States dollars, 50 in trade silver and if I want more silver, I can buy it with a differential, and I'm back where I started. If you're thinking this doesn't make sense, it's because you're, you're thinking too hard. When you go to Mexico, and you buy a bunch of pesos, and you purchase on the local economy with a strong dollar, you don't keep the pesos for later. You spend them while you're in Mexico. Now, if you want some pesos on your way out, you can probably leave with as many as you started with, because it's like a 9-to-1 exchange rate. That's how you work with silver inside a barter network. You use the spending advantage that the silver gives you. You use it till its fullest. So there you go. Now, um, if you're confused by anything I said, there's an interview that I did with Rob that explains the whole thing. I'll put a link in today's show notes. No, it went a little bit long there, but I keep getting that question. Why don't I just save my silver? Well, there's your answer. All right, so let's talk about food storage and why you need to be storing food. Um, let's start out with the why. Because I'm going to get into a lot of practical how-to, what-to today. But the why is what's important, especially when you're talking to other people. Especially when people seem to think that you're somehow, you know, crazy or nuts or insane or, or what have you. You know, you're just, you don't, you know, what's wrong with you? 
that you're you're gonna have all of this food piled up in your house, you know, like you're waiting for Armageddon or Doomsday. I just had a guy, for instance, who I mentioned a few weeks ago when I did a show about fishing. I linked to an article that he did on trot lining for catfish, and he hasn't even listened to the show yet, even though he blogged about being linked to and thought it was cool that the site as big as ours linked to him, and he got so much traffic from it, and he felt like he hit the big time. He said, "So I listened to the show, and he says I think I'm ready for Armageddon, but I'm not sure, right?" And it's a misconception that people have. Whenever they think about storing food and survivalism, that we're all sitting around waiting for the black helicopters to fly and, and things like that. Well, let's look at the practical aspects of storing food for just a minute. First of all, most people that, that think that way, if you ask them if they own a gun, uh, unless they're lefty loons, generally speaking, the ones that are like a little bit friendly to it, but just think we're a little bit too fringe, right? And they're like, yeah, I got a gun. Well, why? Well, in case somebody breaks into my house. Well, what are you going to do if they all shoot them? Okay, well, that makes sense. I don't even disagree. When he breaks into my house, they, you know, I'm not going to definitely shoot anybody that breaks into my house, but you, you stand a good chance of joining the permanent horizontal club uh, and the Dirt Nap Society if you break into my house. I'm not going to apologize for that. But then let's follow that up with how many times has somebody broken into your home? And for most people, the answer is zero. Now, for some people, um, the answer is once or twice. But my next question then is, well, how many times have you, somebody broken into your home while you're there? And then, fortunately for most people, the answer remains zero. Then I'll usually say something along the lines of, well, have you ever been in a fight? And most men will say, yeah, I've been in fights, especially when I was a kid. Well, how many? And it's, it's, you know, it's usually a handful or less fights that people have ever been in. So we look at all the physical altercations, including, you know, the, the being the fifth grade bully up because we were tired of him on the playground, and we have this little handful of incidences, and for many people, the answer is zero all across the board. I follow that up with the question of, well, how often have you needed to feed yourself? And the answer is pretty much, well, from the time that my mom stopped and my dad stopped feeding me as a baby forward till now, I've had to feed myself roughly three times a day or more. And sometimes I had to go hungry and feed myself a little less, but basically I've had to feed myself every day. Okay, well then don't you think that maybe we need to put a little bit more attention into the ability to feed ourselves than whether or not we can prevent a bad guy from stealing stuff out of our house? Or let's look at it another way. I'll ask people, do you have insurance on your car? Yep. How many wrecks have you been in? Most people have been in a wreck in their life. One, you know, or two. Well, let's compare that to how often you have to eat. Well, why do you insure yourself other than the law requires it? Well, if my car gets in a wreck, I need to fix it. I need to, do you have life insurance? And the answer is yes. How many times have you died? Never. If you're still alive, you've never died, right? Unless you believe in reincarnation, which that's cool, but that doesn't really apply to the question. So, you have, we have all these forms of insurance. We have homeowner's insurance. We have fire insurance. We have automobile insurance. We have health insurance. We have protective insurance, that's what I consider firearms, and I think it's a valid form of insurance. Like I said, you break into my house, you get a lifetime membership in the Derp Nap Society. I'm sorry, you should have picked the wrong freaking house to break into. But the practical reality is, the thing that I'm going to need tomorrow is food and or water. And without that, I've got a real problem. And I can go a few days without food, I can go maybe a couple days without water, and I could probably go two weeks without food. Most people could go two to three weeks without food, without dying. But they're going to be in really bad shape. Really bad shape. 
Uh, and then if you have any predispositions like diabetes, it's almost a death sentence. If you have something known as hypoglycemia, which means that you get uh, you know, blood sugar issues, but you're not quite diabetic, then you've got real problems going that long without food. You've got real problems. So we've got everybody with about a three-week threshold at maximum, and then we've got everybody else with something less. But we don't worry about that. At least I don't, we worry about it because we're part of this group that thinks this way. But society as a whole does not. This doesn't really make a lot of sense. And if you think about it, in every major disaster that you see around the world, there's a few things that you always hear that people need. The Haitian earthquake, you know, um, the tsunami, uh, the earthquake in Chile, um, all of these things. When they ask for help, what do they ask for? They ask for food. They ask for comfort items. They ask for medical supplies, and they either ask for water or a way to purify water. And that's it. And that's the big relief effort that goes in. There's also some effort put into providing shelter, but generally people makeshift some sort of shelter for themselves in these situations. It's the food, the comfort items, medical supplies, and the water that are critical to life. And they're also critical to keeping society from breaking down. If you feed people, if people are fed, and they know their kids are going to be fed tomorrow and the next day and the next day, if they have clean water to drink, if they have general comfort items, they tend not to riot in the street and start stringing people up, freaking out, doing things that they normally wouldn't do. Now, there are scum in society who will take any opportunity to behave that way. We all know they exist. They all know that we all know that's part of a reality, and we all know that those people tend to surface during a disaster. But the vast, vast majority of people stay relatively calm as long as they have those needs met. Chief among them being food, and food is something that you can easily store for yourself. So there's kind of the why, a little long, long drawn out reason for why. And if you wonder why I spend time on things like why once in a while. It's because you're going to get these questions. If I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, that's one thing. But it's more how you can understand how to, how to utilize the techniques that I do to get this, these points across on a daily basis. So that when your friend comes over and says, you really store food? You, you think that's wise? You say, yeah, and here's why. I, I find that one of the best ways to put people in touch with it is the subject I touched on last week, and that is pandemic. Hey, do you think it's ever, I think most people, when you say, do you think it's ever possible we'll have a really bad pandemic disease? Something really bad that's killing people where the only way that you're going to be okay is to just stay put and wait it out. And most people will go, well, it might not happen, but it certainly could. And my response to them is, if you had to stay in your home right now, how long would you be able to stay there? Before you had to go out because you were hungry and risk getting infected and worse, bringing infection back to your family. And most of them, it's less than a week. And my, my, my point then is, if that's possible, doesn't it make a little bit of sense? And now we'll go into kind of my big rules, my five big rules of uh, food storage, and that'll help kind of seal the deal when you're talking to people about, you know, all of their objections. The first big objection is, I don't want to go out and buy a bunch of food that I'm never going to eat, stockpile in my garage or my basement or whatever, a bunch of those god-awful MREs. Um, I'll tell you, first of all, I think MREs have a bad reputation. Um, I wasn't real fond of them 
when I was in Honduras, six months into the trip, uh, when there were 12 varieties of MREs back then, uh, two of them were absolutely inedible, so that left you 10. And I'd eaten the same 10 MREs, you know, split up uh, over a 180-day period for lunch every single day. I, I got a little bit sick of them. But to go out and eat one or two on a trail or something like that, or occasionally with a camping trip or whatever to create rotation and a little bit of a backup supply of them, no problem at all. They're not bad. But I don't want cases and cases of MREs in my, my, my uh, garage either. I don't have cases and cases of MREs. We keep some MREs on hand because they're a unique product. They're relatively calorically dense. Uh, they're easily transportable. They require no preparation. Uh, and they have a reasonable variety. And they're not really that bad. They're really not. Some of them don't look very good. Uh, but look and taste are all often quite different. And I'll tell you that as a soldier, if you eat MREs, you've, you've learned how to do all the things necessary to make them a little bit more palatable. And uh, if you start using, like, you know, if you go on a camping trip for three days and use one unit uh, during that three-day trip, you'll start to get that creativity going for yourself. And you'll find the ones that you enjoy and you can focus on just buying them. But the MREs and the, the dehydrated stuff and the freeze-dried stuff and the big number, 10 cans and all, that's down the pike a little bit. And some people don't ever really need that. The first rule is an old cliché. But there's a reason that it's an old cliche. Eat what you store and store what you eat. And start doing things like, I've never heard this term before. I've talked about doing this very process on this show from almost day one, but I'm going to give credit for the term where it's due. Uh, I watched a video by Karen and Ron Hood about a week ago on prepping in the home, and she calls it copy canning. So copy canning is, I use a can, let's say wolf chili, Right? So I go into my pantry this week and I pull out a can of wolf chili because I'm making queso with jalapenos and wolf chili and cheese and, you know, we're going to have some friends over and some dip for a football game. So then I put on my shopping list wolf chili. Well, since I used one can, when I go to the store, I just buy two, and she calls that copy canning. And then I just bring two in. Well, the next time I use one, I bring two in. And the next time I use one, I bring two in. And pretty soon I have a deep pantry built and it will always, if I do that, it will always be the things that I actually use. Because the only time I buy two is when I use one. Now, I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, I think maybe you need to get it off the ground a little quicker and, and go out and just know some of the things that you use. And one of the ways that I've said to do that is to create a food journal. And that means you just take a notebook, put it on your countertop, and write down everything you use for a couple weeks. And you'll real quickly see the things your kids eat and don't eat. And put next to those things when you use them. Look at the expiration date. Jot that expiration date down. And that will give you the average shelf life that that item has. You can always push those numbers a little bit if you have to. So, I mean, you'll be surprised at foods that your kids eat all the time that maybe you don't really think you should be eating, but you let them eat it because they're kids and they can eat anything and get away with it, like potato chips. You'll be surprised at how long a bag of potato chips lasts unopened. You'll also be surprised if when you start buying stuff in the stores, the stores aren't stupid. They put the newest stuff in the back. That's how you stock shelves. As a young kid, one of my first jobs was I was a stock boy. And we always did what was called fronting the merchandise. We always pulled the merchandise close to the front of the shelf so nobody had to reach deep back in. And as we stocked merchandise, we pulled things from the shelf, stocked the new merchandise, replaced the old. 
That way, we, we got our own rotation going on. Right? I was worked for a little family grocery store that didn't practice just-in-time inventory. Some of our stuff sat on the shelf for a while. You'll be surprised at how long some of the stuff sits on the shelves, not at so much your store, but at the staging warehouses. I've gone into Costco, for instance, pulled out a box of a certain kind of cracker and looked at it, and it said it was going to expire in about six months, and it was stacked. So I went to the bottom of the stack, lifted it up, and yanked one out. My wife's going, what are you doing? Right? Pull it out. Hey, that one's not going to expire for 14 months. I've just extended the storability of this product by seven months by pulling from the bottom of the stack or the back of the aisle. So it makes a lot of sense to do that, and I know a lot of preppers do it, but I think a lot of new people don't even think about it. You just go out to stores and go, yeah, we can store that, and you grab it. Well, look at the date on it and pull it from the back and compare the date. Sometimes, if it's a you know well high inventory store, you may not see uh, much of a difference. Sometimes you'll see six months or more. So please do that. But the first rule, eat what you store, store what you eat. Look at your house and look at everything that you consume that's storable and build your storage based on that. Also look at things you eat that are not storable and say, what storable items can we substitute for this? So if you often make beef stew, for instance, okay, well, what do you usually use to make beef stew? In general, you would make beef stew with something like fresh chuck beef, right? Well, I'm not a big fan of canned beef from the store. I think it comes out pretty well if you do it yourself, but most of the canned beef, I'm not real fond of to just sit down and eat straight out of the can. I, I don't know why, it just, yeah. but it makes great stew. Now, it's pretty easy to grow and store things like potatoes and carrots, either fresh, stored, and in a cool, dry space, uh, or uh, grow them or dehydrate them. So with canned beef, carrots and potatoes and celery, uh, stored or dehydrated or grown in my backyard, I can make beef stew anytime I want. And if that's something my family likes, now what I start to do is kind of branch out from the core of eat what you store and store what you eat, and I start storing the supplemental things. And as you're doing the coffee canning technique in that video, Karen made a very good point, stating that once you get a certain amount of inventory and you pull one, you don't really need to this time. Think about something that's similar to that item but different that you also use so you don't end up with too much of one thing. And let your inventory wane a bit and then restock it. So I think these are some good kind of you know ideas that I can give you here. And I'm trying, because I've talked about this subject before, trying to give you some different takes on this. The next thing, though, and this is the important one, and this is the one that will sell food storage to the average housewife in America. The average housewife in America uh, has to deal with a lot of things. Crying kids, uh, teenagers that are spoiled rotten and don't realize that they're spoiled rotten, husbands that uh, come home disgruntled and don't really want to talk when she wants to chat. Uh, there's just so much that, that mothers... Uh, and, and not just married mothers, but single mothers, both of these have to deal with. And one of the things they really hate dealing with more than anything else is sitting down at the end of each week and balancing out a checkbook and determining whether there's enough month at the end of the you know if there's enough money at the end of the month to make it to the end. Will those ends meet this time? So when you can tell that young woman how to save money and improve the quality of her family's life at the same time, She's generally pretty receptive to that message because that question's in her head every day anyway. 
how can I, you know, how can I give these kids what they want? How, how can I do the things that I, I really want to do as a mother? How, how can I make sure that they're gonna, they're gonna have the things that they need tomorrow? These are questions that, that, that fathers have, but mothers really have. They have it at a deeper level. So the next rule is opportunity buy. And most of them are doing this already. When something's on sale, they buy a little bit more of it. Well, with food storage, you can take opportunity buys to a new level. The coupon, the sale, the special. They get used much more intensely. There's, there's two sides to this. There's the obvious side, that if you know meat goes on sale for $1.99 a pound, and it's normally $7.99 a pound, well, you buy more. Here's the problem for most people, and this is the other side. When that's on sale... I only have so much funding that I can allocate to buy that with, unless I'm going to go pull money out of a savings account, and some people don't even have that, and yet they're trying to get a food storage program in place. But if we do simple things that we've just talked about, like coffee canning and slowly building up our pantries with storable food that we eat anyway, and let's say that we were supposed to buy two cans of Wolf, Wolf Chili this week, but we have 14 of them at home. And they were about a buck ninety nine a can. Well, that's two pounds of beef I can buy. You see where the, the money becomes freed up to actually move to the items that are most usable. Because if I have a pantry back home and all of my food storage and rotation put together that will support me for 60 to 90 days, which is kind of your first goal to get to once you get a month down. right? you got to get up to a month first. But that's kind of where I feel safe for you. If you have 60 to 90 days, I think you'll get through 90% of what would happen anyway. So once you have that, and you go, well, Wolf Chili's on the list, but it's not on sale this week. But this item is. I take the funding that was going to go to this item, and I move it over here, because I absolutely don't need to buy this item, the first item. Because I have enough to go 90 days. So I don't need any for 90 days. Now, I don't want to let that, if it's a highly used item, and a highly desirable item, I don't want to let that use come down too much, but I can certainly skip it this week and take advantage of that opportunity to buy and push that to a new level. There are so many things that start to happen like that once you start to store food. There's so many opportunities that you never see that you don't notice because you don't have the capability to utilize them. Once you're walking around, you, it's kind of like giving a guy a good haircut and a new suit and sending him off to the office. He walks around and he'll send him maybe tune up over a weekend to a little retreat. Walks around with a new air of confidence and starts to look at things in a new way and says, hey, we've always done that that way, but that doesn't look like the best way to do things, and now I have the confidence to act on it. And all of a sudden he's moving up the corporate ladder. That's what happens in our homes when we start storing food. Mom looks around and goes, hey, look at this. Look at this item on sale. You know what? I have room for that. I know where to put that. I know what to do with that. I know how to put that away. I know how to extend its storage life. I'm going to max out on that. And these other three things that are on my list, I'm going to push them to next week's list because we don't need them because they're at home. I'm going to take all this funding and I'm going to buy this and I'm going to bring this into our home. And, hey, look what I've done. My family now will have this good quality food item in abundance going forward if something goes wrong or just because we like it. And these things all start to come together, but only when you start to do the work. And what you'll find, though, is there is a limitation to what this approach can do for you. You'll get to a point where it's really kind of hard. You get it three, four months, and trying to get to six months with this approach is tough. It really is. 
if it's the only thing you're doing, I'm going to give you two more big things that you can do today, two more big areas you can cover, and that'll get you there. And you can use one, both, or the other one, right? You can use either one, or, and you can get to six months. Pretty simple. But the first one, and the easy one, is what we avoided in the beginning, and that's bringing in commercially prepared long-term food items. This is now where we go out and say, hey, look, you know what? What are some of the other things that we can substitute? Well, the family likes pork chops on the grill. So maybe I'll go to Safe Castle Royal, the sponsor of the Survival Podcast, and I'll buy from them a case of freeze-dried pork chops for about 180 bucks. It's 180 bucks. It seems like a lot of money. Well, it's six number 10 cans of pork chops. I, I don't remember the count, but it comes out to about $1.80 a pork chop. And freeze-drying is the most expensive and best way to store things, as, as James Talmadge Stevens says. And what that means is when you take a freeze-dried uh, pork chop, rehydrate it, and then grill it, you won't know the difference from something that came out of the freezer section. And that really is true. We've done it. So now we start to go out. Maybe we bring in a few cases of MREs. And this is our portable, emergency, high-caloric food. We bring some of those in two cases, maybe three cases, depending on the size of your family and your individual needs. Then we start bringing in things like some freeze-dried uh, prepared foods, egg powder, milk powder, cheese powder, uh, freeze-dried meats, freeze-dried vegetables. And we try to put away about enough food to last us for at least 30 days in that type of food. Now, that, most of that stuff's going to have a shelf life of 10 years. That really starts to improve the longevity of our food supply, and we don't need to use that food anytime soon. We can really let that sit kind of as, you know, the long-term investment portion of our food supply. But that's not the exact approach I recommend. I recommend that you, instead of buying a case of freeze-dried pork chops, buy a can. Get it home. Open it up. Cook with them. Uh, eat with them. Use them. Uh, have a barbecue and cook, you know, a whole can of them in one day. Give them to your guests. Don't tell them what they are. They won't know. Uh, and determine, if do I like this product? And if you do, then stock up on that individual item. And then occasionally, once in a while, go into that case, pull out a can of something, and use it. And whenever you use it, now do copy canning with commercially uh, storables. So you might be, instead of buying another can, you might buy a case if you get a good deal or what have you. But then eventually try to push that commercially stored portion of your food up to 60 days. Here's the magic. If I have three months of eat what you store and store what you eat, and I have 60 days of commercial storables, I'm at five months. I'm almost at six. That's a number that seems almost insurmountable to people. Now, it might take you two years to get to five months of stored food, but if you do it the way I just described, it will be almost painless, and by the time you're about four months in, you're going to find that you're spending less, not more money at the grocery store because you're going to really be focusing on the opportunity buys. Or you'll spend the same money but come home with a lot more food, and you'll take the saved money, put that into a little slush fund, and next thing you know you're using that to purchase your long-term storables once you get up into about that 90-day range. And all of a sudden, this, this, this process that seemed kind of a little bit far and a little bit weird starts to feel completely and totally natural. And then you start to have, again, more of that confidence, the realization that I'm going to be able to put food on the table. You know, there's an old saying, if we didn't have to eat, we would all be rich. Repeat it. If we didn't have to eat, we would all be rich. I don't know if that's completely true. 
I think we'd find plenty of crap to go into consumer debt with for today. But I do get the sentiment. And the whole point is that it's something we have to pay for and provide for ourselves on a daily basis. So, concurrently with everything I've said, this next rule, really, it starts today. At least in your mind and in your planning, and hopefully in your activity level. And it, it starts from the time you're putting the first two cans instead of one can into the shopping cart and continues for the rest of your life. And it is the most important one to me, and that is becoming a producer. And what I mean is a producer of food items. And there's two primary ways that you can be a producer. And one kind of gets into the world of being a hybrid with the other techniques, and that's the more powerful one. Let's talk about the one that everybody thinks about first. The first one is generally something along the lines of, well, if there's ever a disaster, and people don't even call this being a producer, but that's what they're talking about even if they don't realize it. If you give me a fishing pole and some lures, a rifle and some ammunition and something to dig with and something to cut stuff with, and a good pair of boots, I'll feed myself. I'll go out in the woods and I know exactly how to feed myself. And, and I'm going to be fair, a lot of people that make that claim can do it. They know how. But I also ask them, um, how much of that stuff do you think is going to be available when there's a disaster going on? And they're generally like, what do you mean? And they don't realize that all of those sources of food, as soon as people are actually starving, when it's really necessary, will come under immense pressure almost overnight. And people that have no idea how or what are going to try anyway. It's kind of like there's this commercial for a website called The Ladders. The Ladders is a website for people that uh, earn salaries of $100,000 or more. And you're not even allowed on the site if you haven't had that kind of earnings in the background. You might think that's kind of arrogant, but it's actually a great service and a great site. And their commercial is there's these two guys out playing tennis, and they both look very, very good at the game. And then like a 100 people run onto the court and start trying to play all at the same time. And the guys that are good at the game can't play the game at all, can't play it well, can't be effective with it. Now, is it because the other people out there are so competitive and so good that they overshadow them? No, they're simply in the way. So even the people that you think of as greenhorns and flatlanders, Mr. Wilderness Survivalist, uh, that you don't think will be able to get out there and, and feed themselves effectively, even if you're right, they're still going to be in the way and they're going to ruin everything for everybody. If you talk to old-timers that were alive during the Great Depression, and my grandparents lived through the Depression, uh, what they told me is, you know, all these squirrels and birds and deer and everything running around today, 1935, you didn't see that. By the time we got to 1935, all of the easy stuff was picked off, and there wasn't a lot available for the rest of the Depression all the way up into the war. And a big part of what brought a lot of the game back was most of the men that were uh, good at hunting and trapping uh, went off to war. They weren't here to hunt and trap anymore. It, it, it's happened before, and we need to learn the lessons of history. So one of the primary limitations of being a producer from the concept of hunting, fishing, and foraging is that under a time of disaster, those things will come under pressure, both effective pressure that will delete the resources and, and reduce the resources, and ineffective pressure, which will be a bunch of ass clowns getting in your way and ruining your ability to feed yourself, even though you know a hell of a lot more than they do. So I'm not saying those skills aren't valuable. In fact, I think you should have them. I do, and I work on improving them every day. You'll understand how valuable they can be in peacetime, we'll call it, in just a minute. 
The next way of being a producer that people generally think about, which I think is a little bit more effective, is in growing your own food and, and raising your own livestock. So instead of having to go out and fish, I have a tank with tilapia growing in it that I feed duckweed that I grow in another tank that just sits out in the sun and grows duckweed all summer long. I don't have to do anything to be able to feed those fish that way, other than take a few cups of duckweed and dump it in their tank every day. And that's a system that's very self-sustaining. Uh, the aeration part of it can actually be done very easily with small and filtration with small-scale solar. Now, if I add a, a couple grow beds to that and start growing some vegetables, now I have meat and vegetables with aquaponics. On top of that, I have a nice garden. Maybe I have some trees, vines, and shrubs out there with perennial crops producing for me, and I'm growing annual vegetables like peppers and, and onions and tomatoes and squash and things like that. Okay, that's, and then maybe I have a little chicken coop, and I have chickens that provide me eggs, and occasionally they provide me chickens, and maybe I have a rabbit hutch, and anything like that. That's kind of the next level of production, and when I say be a producer, it's probably where your mind goes, and there's a very good reason for it. It's highly effective, and it's highly effective if times get tough, and even if they don't. There's people, more and more people around the United States living that way every day. Homesteading is hot right now. It's becoming a big-time thing. And people are not just doing it out in the country anymore. They're doing it in suburbia. And I love seeing it. And I'm glad that I, I get to be some part of that movement. I, I feel like the show is a part of that movement. It's encouraged a lot of people to do it, and that's great. Here's why I think it's so great, though. Whenever you watch shows about disasters, the big ones, you know, oil running out or massive catastrophe, economic collapse and failure, the people always have to go do that anyway. Well, the more people we can get doing it now, believe it or not, will actually start to prevent the disasters from ever becoming that acute. And if they do, we are better prepared for them. But those things are limited as well. Let's talk about the limitations of the first one beyond um, coming under pressure in a disaster, the actual hunting, fishing, foraging. The limits to these are there's seasons and laws and regulations and bag limits. So even if I'm a pretty good fisherman, I can't fish at times of the year when it's too cold and the fish aren't biting or certain species are out of season. And even if I have a really good day and I'm catching a lot of fish, there's generally a bag limit so that we don't deplete the population of fish, which is a very good thing. But that limits how many fish I can bring home. If I'm foraging, if I'm out there and I'm you know harvesting, I love to go out on the mountain up in Arkansas. We harvest tons and tons of blackberries, and we do a lot of really great things with them from making blackberry meat to blackberry jelly to just freezing them and using them in fruit smoothies and eating them fresh and, you know, tossing some on ice cream. I mean, they're a great little berry. And all you have to do is go out there and pick them. Um, but they're not ripe yet. They won't be ripe for about another month and a half, two months before the first ones start to get ripe. And then there won't be that many. And about July, they'll really be getting ripe up there. And they'll stay, you know, pickable till about August and they'll be gone. So the rest of the year, other than July and August, there's not exactly a surplus of blackberries. Now, there's other things that happen. There's different things that start to come into uh, to use as the blackberries go out. And then we get into fall, and a lot of the like, hickory nuts and things like that start to become available. But there's a seasonality here, where if we just rely on this, there are some very cold, lean times of the year, specifically between about January 10 and about right now, before things start to come back. And with hunting, we have the same type of thing. You can't go hunting for most game species that are edible in May or April. 
So it's the time of the year when the protein's lean. Even though it's there, we legally can't harvest it. Now, obviously we can harvest it in a crisis survival situation if people are going to, and the law won't mean a lot, and that'll be a sad, dark day. But for right now, day-to-day, that limitation is also there. So you can't go deer hunting right now. right? Even if you're a great big deer hunter, you can't go out there and put venison in the freezer right now or make biltong or jerky or sausage or anything else because you legally cannot do it. And it's pretty unethical to be out there shooting deer right now because the does are dropping fawns. Uh, the bucks are just starting to put their antlers on. This is a, you know, a, a rough time of year to be a deer. This is a time where they need that rest. That's why it exists. So both of these have these limitations. Now, your growing limitations, you could have a bad year. You can only grow so much. Your harvest is also seasonal to a degree. Even with a greenhouse and spreading out the harvest, there's peak times of harvest and, and lean times of harvest. I spent this much time on these limitations to give you the other side of being a producer. And this is the most powerful part of the food storage philosophy that we're talking about today. And that's becoming a producer of storables. And this works with your foraging, it works with your hunting, it works with your fishing, it works with growing stuff in your garden, it works with growing perennials, it works with going to a farmer's market at the end of the season and buying 50 pounds of green beans for 40 cents a pound because the guy wanted to get rid of them before they went bad. So becoming a producer of storables is learning food storage techniques. So now you're not just producing a bunch of tomatoes, you're producing canned tomatoes instead of buying them at the store. Now you're not just going out and producing potatoes, but you're blanching them and dehydrating them and storing them in in cans or jars. So now you have stored potatoes that actually cost you very little to nothing. Maybe the storage container and the oxygen absorber and about 13 cents worth of electricity to dehydrate 50 pounds of potatoes. It also, though, again, it works with the other things. If you learn how to make biltong, which is my favorite meat thing in the world, biltong is kind of like African jerky. It's made thicker uh, than jerky, and you don't smoke it, and you don't dry it in the sun. You dry it in uh, dry conditions in the shade, which basically is an air-conditioned room, is a great place to do it. And you, uh, I'll give you the basic recipe for biltong. People keep wanting to make this more complicated than it is. Cut your meat about an inch thick in strips that are about an inch wide. Uh, so if you have a big steak, you kind of cut a spiral is a good way to do it. Take some paper clips. Unbend them so they look like an S-hook. Uh, those are going to be your hooks for hanging things up. Put your meat into a tub. Coat it with six thick salt, like sea salt or kosher salt, margarita salt, that type of salt. Uh, get some salt everywhere. Don't cake it on, but coat it. Before you put the salt on, though, spray it with a little bit of apple cider vinegar. To your meat, also add some coriander to taste and black pepper. I like to make sure there's a good amount of black pepper everywhere. Sit that in a refrigerator overnight. Let it marinate. Take it out. If there's any big pieces of salt left on it, kind of brush off the salt so it's not too much. Take your paper clip. Stick them through there. Put a rope in a room that's air-conditioned. Don't build a box. Don't make this complicated. Hang up the freaking rope. Hang the meat up and leave it there for two weeks. That's it. And people go, oh, my God, the meat must go. It doesn't go bad. It's been being done for, for over 5,000 years in South Africa. They dry it outside in the shade. They use the coriander and the black pepper mainly to keep flies off the meat, but I think it tastes good. That's it. If you can make biltong and you can live in a state with a high limit on deer, like in, in Texas, it's, uh, it's a pretty good limit. In Arkansas, in the county I'm in, it's five deer a year. That's a lot of deer meat. Even making some steaks and chops and sausage and backstraps and everything else, you can still make a ton of biltong. 
Some of you guys live in states where you can shoot a deer a day. If deer limits up to 30 deer, if you learn how to do these things, then learn how to can. So make some biltong out of your venison and make some canned beef out of your, or canned meat out of your venison. That canned venison makes excellent uh, stew. It's wonderful stew meat. Tender, juicy, and it's quick stew. Basically, you just cook until the potatoes and the carrots are soft and it's ready to eat because it's pretty much cooked when you're, when you're done with the canning process. And it's all nice and tender and it comes in its own great sauce that makes a great gravy base. Now you say, well, I'm not a hunter. How does this apply to me? Glad you asked. Go to the meat market when they have meat on sale and can it. Go to the meat market when they have meat on sale and make biltong out of it. Find your local farmer's market. Sometimes they'll have beef you won't believe how inexpensive it is. I just made a bunch of biltong. I didn't go out and shoot a deer. I was at Tom Thumb, and they were selling London broil for $1.99 a pound. London broil is a good cut of meat. It's a little bit tough. It's not as tender as like a good sirloin or whatever. Most people cook it on the grill. It's good that way. Very, very lean. Usually a big strip of fat on the outside, and the whole center is just huge, thick piece of meat, $1.99 a pound. I bought 20 pounds of it, turned it all into biltong. Great stuff. Dirt cheap, right? 40 bucks. And I've gotten, and, and biltong will last longer than I will. It's almost a mummification of meat. Uh, best place to eat your biltong is under a blanket with a flashlight so no one knows you're doing it and comes and steals your biltong from you. It's, uh, it's pretty precious stuff, honestly. But if you learn these preservation techniques and you're a hunter, a gardener, a forager, a fisherman, you can use them all with the stuff that you bring in from the field or that you bring in from your backyard. Even if you're not, you can use these food storage techniques to take the opportunity by to a new level. So when you see something that's on sale, when you go to the farmer's market and that guy's got beautiful green beans, and you look at them and you go, 47 cents a pound. And you think, if I buy 20 pounds, that's like less than 9 bucks. I have 9 bucks. I'd like 20 pounds of these things. But what am I going to do with them? We're not going to eat. You know, even if we ate green beans every day, 20 pounds of green beans is a lot of green beans. We'll never eat them before they go bad. Well, that would be true. But if you dehydrate them and put them away, you can turn that 20 pounds of green beans into about 4 pounds of dehydrated green beans, and they'll fit, fit nicely into about 2 gallons of space. And now you can rehydrate them and use them in your cooking, whatever you want. And instead of going out and spending more, you know, spending about 25 bucks to buy that from someone else to prepare it for you, you prepare it for yourself at a fraction of the cost, both at a fraction of the cost for the fresh and for the pre-prepared. Additionally, maybe you go ahead and you set aside two pounds of those green beans for fresh eating. Maybe three, whatever fits your house and your budget and things like that. But you're able to use these techniques of storage. And there's a lot of them. There's things that you can do with, with smoking to extend storage times. Uh, but my two favorites are canning and dehydration. And there's almost two camps there, and almost to the point of, like, the, the, the canner thinks the dehydrator is not getting it, and the, and the dehydrator thinks the canner's not. I think there's a place for both of them. Uh, dehydrating meat in a typical way is really not very productive. There are some ways to do it. I'll be doing some YouTube videos for you on like how you can make uh, trail beef uh, with ground beef uh, and, and make a dehydrated beef product that keeps very well for six months. Even though people tell you you can't do it. They're wrong. I'm sorry. You can. I've done it. It works. I'll show you how. But it, it, it is a little harder to make a really good meat product from a dehydration standpoint than it is from canning. The other thing is I'm going to tell you the truth. 
Some dehydrated vegetables are wonderful when they're rehydrated and cooked with. Uh, green beans, I prefer canned. So if I got that 20 pounds of green beans, I'm likely to, to can 10 to 20 pounds of green beans versus dehydrating. I just think that's a vegetable that tends to come out to me better if it's, uh, if it's canned. It's also quicker preparation time. It is more labor-intensive. But to me, there's a place for both of these things. And if you learn both of them, what you'll find is sometimes you don't feel like canning, so you just dehydrate. Sometimes you don't feel like dehydrating, so you can't. Sometimes you just go ahead and eat it right away. But you have that flexibility because you've become a producer. And I think what you're seeing here is kind of the way that this all meshes to the, uh, the, the, together in the end. If you approach food storage from a, a, a single viewpoint, the concept of I'm just going to buy or I'm just going to grow or I'm just going to hunt, you just aren't going to get the greatest results. I mean, you're really not going to get the results that you're looking for. Because it's it, it, with that singular viewpoint, you end up with a surplus of only a few things. And when you have a surplus of only a few things, what you have is something that doesn't get used. And if it doesn't get used, it, it sits around until it's no longer good anymore, and then it becomes wasteful. And then you look at it and go, look at all this money I spent and wasted. Um, and you do start, when somebody tells you you're crazy, you start to think, well, maybe you're right. I mean, I've been sitting on these uh, pallets of uh, MREs and uh, number 10 freeze-dried cans for 10 years and nothing's ever happened. And all I do is occupy all this space in my garage. And, damn, they're so old now, I should really get rid of them and replace them. That's going to cost me a lot of money. And I, I don't know that I want to do that anymore. Because this is a lifestyle, folks. It's not just uh, something you do once and forget about it. Well, anything singular will do that to you. Except eat when you store store you. You can do that one. You can pull off again two months of food storage that way pretty easy. But that is very in of itself because it's varied by what you buy and what you eat. You are the variance. But if you really want to have five, six months or more of food storage in your home, you need this holistic approach. And that is my final rule with food storage. No magic bullets. Seek a holistic approach. Learn all of these preservation techniques. Utilize eat what you store, store what you eat. And then take the surpluses that come from that and use the storage techniques to create storables out of things that would generally be considered usable for fresh eating. So now we're able to go in, and again, we can buy beef, which generally wouldn't be storable, and we can biltong it, we can jerk it, uh, or we can go ahead and can it. We can do all these different things when beef is on sale that normally would not be available to the average person who hadn't taught themselves these techniques and made allowances to learn these techniques. But then the important thing is once we put that food away and store it, it needs to go right into our pantry, right into our rotation system, and become part of our diet. With the exception of the biltong, uh, you might need to like put a time lock on something so that you save it because telling you you're gonna it's like opening a bag of jerky with the you know they sell the big bags of jerky with the ziploc closure that ziploc closure is a waste isn't it i mean jerky's fine for a day uh open to the air and the bag generally isn't empty at the end of the day right well that's that's how bill talking to me with everything else you know you need to make yourself use it you need to put it into your cooking look at dehydrated vegetables for instance uh, you take your dehydrated vegetables and some canned meat. You can make a great soup, a great stew. Uh, I've started doing things with my trail mixes. Like, um, I bought some dehydrated vegetables. I've been making my own dehydrated vegetables. You throw a little bit of bouillon in there. You make a reasonable chicken soup or a ham soup or something like that. But, you know, the 
dehydrated meats, uh, the soy products. They just don't taste like meat. But what's amazing to me is what that little freeze-dried packet of soup mix does. If you take just a small can, maybe a three-ounce can, which isn't much in your pack when you're going out on the trail and doing things like that, of canned ham or canned chicken or canned beef. And then you open that can and put that into your soup once you have it all reconstituted. Because the canned meat is very tender, so you don't want to cook it for as long as you even cook the vegetables. You just want to put it in there at the end and let it warm through. And all of a sudden, now you're eating real chicken soup. In fact, a little bit of juice that comes out of the can with the chicken helps enhance the broth. Well, you can do that at home. You can do that on the trail. You can do that in your RV. You can do that on a camping trip. You can do it tomorrow when you make you know soup with dinner for, for your kids. And everybody will like it. It's amazing how fresh dehydrated vegetables taste, especially in soups. Here's another example of how you combine these things. One of the things that I store from Honeyville Grains, uh, which again, if you're MSB, you get 10% off all this stuff from Honeyville, is their powdered eggs. I think I, I don't do their powdered egg whites. I believe that an egg is designed to be eaten as a whole protein. That's whites and, and yolks together. And a lot of the protein in the uh, whites of an egg ends up indigestible without that yolk. Don't let the nutritionist lie to you. There's a reason you lose weight when you just eat uh, egg whites. It's because you're being malnourished. Those, those, that egg is a food source together, not separated. doesn't mean egg whites aren't useful for other things, but for eating eggs, eat the freaking egg. right? Even if you're worried about it you know, and you're going to make a three-egg omelet, uh, Use two whites and, and one whole egg. At least get some of that yolk in there. It's part of the, the, the enzymic digestive process and the things that you need to break it down. So I take their egg powder before I go on a tyrant on I hate nutritionists because most of them have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, but you take the egg powder, you mix that up, you dehydrate, you take some of your dehydrated vegetables, let's say some peppers, uh, a little bit of celery, uh, some tomatoes, and uh, I don't know, some jalapeno pepper. And it's a spinach flakes. Put that in a little dish. Just a teaspoon of each. That's all you need to make a pretty nice sized omelet because of how, stuff, how far the stuff goes down. Pour a little bit of water in there and let them rehydrate for a bit. When they're done rehydrating, after about 15 minutes, dump them into a pan, leave the remaining water with them, cook the water off, add a little bit of oil or butter or what have you, uh, spread them out on a layer, drop your egg mixture in there, cook an omelet. Maybe add a little bit of cheese at the end of it. You know what? No one would know that was made with dehydrated vegetables and canned eggs. Absolutely no one. Now you're taking long-term storables, dehydrated vegetables, and egg powder. You're making them part of your general diet. And you know what? Making an egg omelet that way is pretty dadgone easy, pretty dadgone fast. And you can even go through and pre-measure things and put them in a small little packet so everything's ready to go. So it actually speeds up your, your, uh, your ability and your dehydrated vegetables. You can even put the mixes in little bags. And when you're rehydrating them, just dump the water in the bag and seal it and let it sit there. And that can sit in the refrigerator overnight if you want to. It, it won't hurt anything. It's not going to become overly hydrated, and it's all ready to go in the morning. The water, if you do separate, it makes a good vegetable stock. There's so many things you can do if you just start getting a little bit creative and understand that food storage is not about a bunch of boxes of food in a, in a basement or a garage. 
It's about understanding your, your nutritional, your dietary, and your human needs and your desires and the things that you actually like and enjoy and making it part of your life. And if you do that, all of a sudden food stores doesn't look like something a loon does. It looks like something any sane, rational person, of course, would do. We, we had all the reasons in the beginning that I talked about. There could be a pandemic and we're stuck at home. You save money with opportunity buys. But you know the real reason you do this? Most convenient damn way to live there is. You know what we don't ever have in this house? Damn, we're out of milk. Because even when we do run out of fresh milk, I can mix some up. At least for coffee and for cooking and things like that. Dehydrated milk, I'm not a fan of drinking straight. I'm really not. But for cooking and everything else, or pop open a can of evaporated milk or something like that, we don't ever have I'm out of flour. I'm out of sugar. Oh, I want to make this recipe, but I don't have a can of crushed tomatoes. You know those things that happen at every house in America? Go over to the neighbors. Can we borrow a cup of sugar? We don't ever have that. It's like having a convenience store in our own home. Whatever we need is there, and we just restock what we use each week. And that's the beauty of this. If you get to a point where you're doing these things, what you'll find is that eventually you'll get to a point where when you go to the grocery store, you don't look any different than anybody else. Because all you're doing is replacing what you ate that week. Now think about this. Think about this very carefully. This is important to understand. It'll change the dynamic of food storage for you. It's what everybody else actually does. They eat everything out of the house and home. At Friday, Friday night, mom makes a list. Saturday afternoon, they go to the store, and they resupply what they ate that week. Right? All you're doing is putting more into the system. So think about it this way. You turn the water faucet on every day and water flows through that faucet and comes out. And let's say you use it to water your pots and your gardens outside. All right? Now, you're only using, let's say, 10 gallons of water a day to water your potted plants on your deck. Now, if you go out and buy three 100-gallon rain barrels, but instead of making them rain barrels, you just put an inlet hose on one, Connect the other two to the first one and an outlet hose on the third. Attach your hose, hose to the outlet hose. Turn the water on. Once the three barrels fill to the top, the water is going to come out of the hose with relatively the same pressure it always did. Because water pressure comes from initial pressure plus constriction. So you're constricting the water to the same pathway you always were. Every time you turn that water on, you're using 10 gallons just like you always did. Turn the water off, and you're constantly rotating the water. Great little trick. Learned it from James Talmud Stevens, author of Making the Best of Basics. Great book, by the way. You should check out my website and get it a copy there. You'll see it in my book list with all the other books I recommend. But if you do that, you always have fresh water. The water never goes bad, never goes stagnant. But if the supply ever gets cut off, and you need a backflow preventer to prevent siphoning from happening, but if the supply ever gets cut off, there's still 300 gallons of water there, right? If you use 10 gallons a day from that water source, then how many days can you go without water? It's pretty simple to figure out, isn't it? Because all you do is take, well, 10 gallons from 100 gallons, I get 10 days per barrel, right? And then I have three barrels, so I have 30 days of water in reserve, just for watering my plants. Now, in an emergency situation, you may be using that water to drink and clean and cook and other things. But you get the point. That's exactly what we're doing here with our food storage. We're not really buying more forever. 
We're buying a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until we fill up those barrels. Now, once they're full, we're taking out of the front, we're replacing from the back, and we end up going back into the same routine that everybody else does. Use some, buy some. Use some, buy some. Use some, buy some. And in the in between, we bring in supplementation from our hunting, our fishing, our foraging, our gardening, our permaculture, and all these other things. And all of a sudden, this really big spooky topic like food storage where everybody thinks you're a nut becomes practical down to earth and above all convenient so if you have been holding back on the food storage aspect of survivalism if your food storage amounts to one seven gallon rubbermaid tote with some with some cans in it and a couple cases of stuff that you bought uh, to put away if that is your entire food storage you're doing it wrong I applaud you for taking at least that step. Yes, an emergency. You probably have two, three, or four weeks worth of emergency rations. That'll work. But you're not improving your life now, not today. That's what this is all about. It is the tagline of my show, not because I thought, well, that's a great marketing slogan. You know, folks, I've been a marketer for most of my life. It was either in sales or marketing. And I'll tell you, living the, helping you live the life you want if times get tough or even if they don't won't fly in any boardroom in America. In fact, when I was consulting as a marketer, I went in, uh, one of my clients, believe it or not, back in the day, was Donald Trump's Trump University. If I went into Trump University and said, I got a great tagline for Trump University, helping you live the life you want if times get tough or even if they don't, or helping you have the finances that you want today if times get tough or even if they don't, would have never flown. Probably would have worked. But it would have never flown. It's a, as far as the rules of marketing, it's, it's long, it's drawn out, and because of that, it's not easily memorable. It's improper grammar and not in an edgy way. It's a terrible tagline, but it sells the show. And it sells the show because it's real. And it's not just, and, and the reason I bring that up is it's not just to be catchy, and it can't mean anything but what it means. For instance, some of the great strap lines, Nike, just do it. Well, that can mean so many things. Think about it. That can mean so many things. And it is designed to be memorable. So Nike, just do it. So you remember it like that. Coke, the real thing. The hell is the real thing? It's actually meaningless. It doesn't tie the brand to anything, and that's actually part of the goal with branding. The brand still has freedom, yet it has an affinity, an identity. Uh, one of the greatest marketers in the world, the Sachi brothers, would call that a love mark. That when someone hears the real thing, they think Coke. It's not just Coke, the real thing, right? It's, it's the other way around as well. If I say safety, odds are if you're a car person, you think Volvo. If I say safe car, you're definitely thinking Volvo. Even though there's plenty of other safe cars out there, that brand became affiliated with them. Well, that's what most people do with marketing. I'm a marketer. I know this. Why did I break the rules? Because I wanted something that was unique and actually did tie me to something. I didn't want flexibility. I wanted accountability to you, the audience. That's what my strapline is all about. I can't tell you to do something unless I know that done properly and integrated properly into your lifestyle, it makes your life better today. Isn't that cool? That's why this show is different. That's why when I had to comment on the guy I mentioned earlier's blog and said, you know, I guess I'm ready for Armageddon or whatever, I had to say, hey, you'd be surprised at the positive way that this show comes across. 
Because if we're improving your life today, we can't help be anything but positive. So there you go. Make food storage positive. Make everything else you do positive. And keep working to improve that life. Because you can do it. And I'm gonna, I don't know why this made me think of this, but I, I just found out something that I'm sad about, but I'm, I'm also proud about. Uh, recently I said something about China. And I said I'm probably banned in China. Well, a, a listener was just in China and has confirmed the Survival Podcast is banned in China. Now, I don't like that because there's 1.6 billion people, or 1.7 billion people, something like that, uh, 1.3, whatever it is. There's a billion and a half Chinamen that I think would be really impacted by this message. I think they'd really take it to heart, and I think they'd be great members of our community, and I think they could teach us a tremendous amount about how to grow our own food. But I am proud, and I'll tell you why I'm proud. What it means is the Chinese government sees me as a threat. And why do they see me as a threat? Because I'm an American patriot that wants to spread the ideals of America? No. They see me as a threat because I'm a human that believes in the intrinsic value of a human being and that tells people you are your own solution. Government is not. Well, that's what food storage is, and that's what everything we talk about it is. How to improve your life today without waiting for somebody to do it for you tomorrow. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.